0: 1997. I had just been hired at a new startup company in the telecommunications sector. It was an exciting time. The company was filled with young, enthusiastic employees, and it seemed for a number of years that our lives completely revolved around our jobs. We worked together, partied together, and even vacationed together. The internet bubble was ballooning, and we were living life to its fullest. It was a very close-knit environment, and even now, almost 20 years later, I still consider my former coworkers to be some of the closest friends I've ever made in my entire life. After a few years in the tech support department, I applied for a role in the Network Operations Center. It was a dark glass-walled room, lined with desks, multiple monitors, and luxurious office chairs. The front wall was filled with giant screens projecting images of our network, and this room was always the focal point for tours of the company. We called it the fishbowl. Working in that room was something I'd always wanted to do since the first day I started, and after a few years of being with the company, I'd finally been granted a promotion and was now among the ranks of the network team. We worked late nights and would always try to end the day at whatever bar was within walking distance. We grew very close to one another, and the crazy stories are still entertaining to reminisce about. You might be surprised when I tell you this isn't a story about me. I'm only setting the stage to tell you a story about a co-worker who sat in the desk behind me at the time. It's a tragic tale that involves one man's life spiraling, out of control, leading To another man's death. Please join me as we fall deeper into this rabbit hole, exploring the underworld of street drugs and examining the unfortunate chain of events in the life of Chester Abbotsbury.
1: My name is Chester Abbotsbury, and I served five and three quarter years out of 12 for a manslaughter conviction.
0: I reached out to Chester a couple of months ago, asking how he'd feel about me possibly interviewing him for an upcoming episode. Truthfully, I didn't know much about the details surrounding his arrest. When he was arrested, I had accepted a position in a different province, and I was only able to keep up to date with my social network through Facebook. One day, after getting settled into my new office, I logged into Facebook and my jaw almost hit the floor. People were posting articles from the CBC and the National Post stating a 35-year-old Toronto man had been arrested for second-degree murder. My newsfeed was flooded by comments from friends wondering if this was in fact our former co-worker. The name was the same. His job title had been listed, and by the end of the day... One person commented, I just got a confirmation that it's him from someone who was interviewed by the cops about this situation. A lot of true crime podcasts out there cover higher profile cases. The kind of stories that have been covered by most of the major news outlets. But sadly, homicide occurs more often than we're aware of. It happens every day in our neighborhoods affecting countless families around the world. Sometimes these cases will get a few short paragraphs tucked away in a newspaper. Maybe a few short lines of dialogue on a news broadcast. The year Chester was arrested, there had been 61 homicides in Toronto. And so here's the thing. None of us can predict what might happen from one moment to the next including being put in a position where you might find yourself fighting for your life. Any one of us could wind up on the 6 o'clock news. This is a story of one of those cases. My former colleague Chester agreed to be interviewed, and because we lived in a relatively close proximity to one another, I thought it made the most sense to meet in person. Also, one of the restrictions of his parole includes him not being allowed to travel outside a certain perimeter from his home. So we agreed to do the interview at his place. We also did a follow-up interview a week later by phone. I'm letting you know this because there is a difference in the sound quality from when I was at Chester's home and when we spoke on the phone. So I made my way to Chester's home, and I have to admit, I was a bit nervous. Not because I was about to interview a man that had been convicted, who did time in prison, but because I had never conducted an interview before. How do you begin to talk about how one man killed another? When I arrived, Chester greeted me on the front steps of his apartment building. He was a lot bigger than I remembered. Surprisingly... The years of confinement hadn't seemed to take a physical toll on him. He just looked like a more mature version of the person I remembered. Minus the vast amount of tattoos he had acquired, he pretty much looked like the same guy. As I approached him, he shoved a deck of cards into my hand, and he said, I have a present for you. And he continued by saying, these cards are issued to all new prisoners and each card has a tip on how to stay safe in prison and keep from contracting Hep C. The pack was black and had a drawing of the Grim Reaper on it. It was also weathered, but unopened. I could tell by the look of it. He'd carried them around for a long time, and I was very grateful for the gift. We slowly made our way into his apartment building and up to his fourth-floor unit, we went and sat down at his right. kitchen table, where we began the interview. Okay, we're definitely recording. Okay, so, um, is one of the first things we should probably talk about, is how we met. Sure. Uh, and we're colleagues. Yes. Um, we used to
2: work for a large telecommunications company, and we started off in different departments, but doing relatively similar things, and soon ended up on the same team. uh, Your desk was right behind mine. Yeah, yeah. We had a lot of fun. Um, It was kind of a rotating shift to cover all the customers, and there were some crazy late nights for sure, watching movies and that type of thing when there wasn't much going on and trying to make it through the night and stay awake. Um, I think they brought you on for your kind of leadership and team building because you had been a team lead with the other team uh, and done really well in keeping people motivated and being kind when you gave them construction and... Uh, constructive criticism, that type of thing. So, yeah, it was a pleasure to have you on the team to work with you. And we were doing networking stuff, highly technical, Uh, definitely not radio.
0: By the way, Chester isn't his real name. Due to the nature of his crime, he asked to remain anonymous. Throughout our interview, I'll refer to him as Chester or Chess for short. But before we get to the interview, let me tell you a little bit about what I remember about him. Chester and I had worked together for about five years. He was what I would describe as an eccentric person. He would come into work one day wearing a pinstripe suit sporting a fedora. And the next day, he'd be wearing these gigantic black parachute pants with straps dangling off them and a tight black t-shirt looking like he was about to head off to a rave. I couldn't even imagine wearing shorts to work, and yet Chess managed to pull it all off with these wild outfits. It baffled me. He was a brilliant network tech, and his performance did not go unnoticed. Our director saw the potential in chess, and after a couple of years, he was promoted into a lead position in the department. It was around that time that I was transferred to another department and moved to an entirely different building. On visits back to my old office building, I would see chess from time to time, and it appeared to me that he was climbing up the corporate ladder. I was sure that one day, chess would be my boss. And right when all this was happening was when tragedy struck the dot-com industry. According to an article on Investopia, it described the bust as this. The internet bubble of the 1990s burst after more than five years of steady market growth. Peaking on March 10, 2000. The collapse of many startup internet companies along with several interest rate increases by the Federal Reserve, led to an economic recession precipitated by a rapid decline in the NASDAQ. The end result was layoffs and severance packages being offered to employees. Chess was one of the people who decided it was time to pack it up and move on to greener pastures. When I asked Chess what he recalled about that time, he told me.
2: Yeah, I took a package because the company wasn't doing very well and the packages were really good and I'd started up a rave production company at the time and figured that given the package and then a little while on EI, I could make that go for a living and if not I could go and find other work. Um, IT was doing very well at that time in terms of the labour market and uh, it was after the dot com boom of course but there were still lots and lots of jobs for people who knew what they were doing and had stayed in the industry and from there I got into uh, mobile media and I worked at first for a company in Toronto and then another one in Manhattan. did that for a number of years. I had an office down at King Street in Dufferin where I had anywhere from 10 to 15 kind of friends and colleagues. I tended to bring people in that I knew already into the team to do the uh, media production. I had some engineers working for me. I had some web people as well We had a lovely little office and again had a lot of fun kind of shutting things down at 3 p.m. on a Friday so we could have scotch and cigars and and chill out as friends and, and whatnot before we headed home.
0: Things were going well for Chess. He had a successful business operating in the mobile media industry, but it didn't take long for his successful career path to take a turn for the worse.
2: And I had a spinal injury in 2005. And so I left that role for obvious reasons. I wasn't able to spend time in a desk. And it took an awfully long time for the Canadian medical establishment to figure out just what was wrong and do anything for me. At the time, it was a year to wait for an MRI. The provinces put a lot of money into shortening wait times, but they're still not great. So during that time, I wasn't able to work. It had happened on a business trip to San Francisco. But because I was out of the country, the travel insurance didn't cover long-term disability or anything like that and I moved back in with my parents after I became dependent on opiates and there's a lot of press being given right now about the opioid epidemic uh, in the States especially but here in Canada as well and ten years ago it was awfully easy to get hooked through your
0: doctor. Chess was living with his parents and had become addicted to opiates due to the chronic back pain he endured and at some point they asked him to move out. And without any form of support, he was forced to go back to work sooner than he was ready. Still dealing with chronic pain, he began self-medicating.
1: I wasn't doing it to get high, um, and I wasn't doing it to the point where I was blotted out or it was visible. I really was just dealing with the withdrawal symptoms I I became dependent. Um, and also dealing with the chronic pain condition.
0: We decided to get some further insight from a medical professional.
1: My name
3: is Karen Wickham, and I'm a retired nurse. I worked in the ER for over 20 years, both in pediatric and, I'm going to call it adult medicine, but general hospital.
0: We asked Karen... To explain how individuals might transition from using prescription medication to street drugs,
3: there's a couple of avenues that can lead somebody in that direction, and one of them could be an accident or an illness that they got all of a sudden, and if you can imagine, it will affect all of their life. So they take the medication for you know the true pain that they're suffering from, but everything else is still going on around them that becau- that could be causing them. Depression and you know fear, anxiety, et cetera, so while taking that medication, the sedative effect of it or the tranquilizing type of effect of it can really feel good as well, and you know there's nothing wrong with that it's just what it does, and as the pain starts to improve, sometimes people want to they don't want to admit to it, but they still kind of enjoy that feeling because a lot of the other stuff is still going on, and that can lead to Needing the medication. And it's also depending on how long you're on. If you have a condition that, you know, you need six weeks, two months, then you're really getting into a dependence point, regardless of, you know, it, it can happen to anybody. And it is a challenge to get off of it. So, in one sense, that kind of thing can happen to anybody. If you have underlying addiction issues, mental health issues, that just exacerbates it even more. I don't think there's enough care given to people when being put in like information when being put on it. And then I don't think there's enough care and support when trying to get them off the medication. So once you're in that state of addiction and a doctor cuts you off, like you're in instant pain from withdrawal. And it might even bring up pain that you had been feeling from an injury because that's, that's going to, you're going to start to feel that a bit more then when a doctor cuts it off, you may have to turn to the streets or to someone else to get it. And medications are really expensive. And people will sell per pill a lot. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I know this from my experience working in Emerge and learning this from people, but one particular pill, like say OxyContin, something like that can cost 10, 25 bucks a pill. Um, Heroin is very, very cheap compared to that. And it's just a matter of trying to keep that normalcy. So they go from that, then how the heck am I going to afford to get this? People will often doctor shop in the meantime. Maybe a surgeon or a physician that had you know, initially prescribed the medication stops it. So they'll go to their family doctor maybe, or a clinic, or an ER, and doctor shop until they can't anymore. And then they're done. They can't get the medications. And then that's what leads to... Uh, can lead to the street drugs. When I saw people come in with addiction and they were really hurting and they will do anything they can to get that drug, that's not something they want. That's not something how, how they wanted their life to be. And they will use very, very manipulative and even like just like awful ways to get it. But at the end of the day, they have another medical problem. So yeah, I would see lots of people come to the door, and either given like some doctors will say, fine, I'll, I'll give them uh, a one day's prescription of it and then send them home, or other doctors would say, you know, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And it's every walk of life. Addiction does not, you know, affect just a very specific type of person. It can. I've seen people come in with suits, and I've seen people come off the streets.
0: We asked Chess to explain to us. More about his dependency on drugs.
1: I had $120 a day habit at times. It was anywhere from 80 to $120 a day. That's not cheap by any measure. Um, for an 80 milligram Oxycontin, it was $80. And, you know, I didn't go back and forth a lot. I didn't know anyone who carried the pharmaceutical stuff that was being funneled away from a lot of people on say disability. So I had a a fairly secure source who would come to my house. I was never buying in public. It never left my house either. Didn't do it at work. I was doing it just to keep ahead of withdrawal and to deal with my pain and I had to go back to work well before I was ready to. I, I wasn't capable of sitting in a desk for eight to ten hours a day without some sort of chemical means to get through that. It was just too excruciating to do.
0: Chess had become dependent on heroin to manage his pain and to continue to work. He explains to us his systematic approach to keeping his pain at bay and continuing to function.
1: Okay, so I think the half-life in um, heroin is three hours, which means about every six hours you need to use again, at the very least. Most people tend to use about five or six times a day. And so, yeah, morning, lunchtime, after work, and a couple of times in the evening, especially to get over the hump of pain to sleep.
0: What we wondered was how Chess knew how much heroin to take at any given time, given that heroin can have different strengths depending on where it's been purchased.
1: That's part of the reason that you always buy the same thing and from the same person. It tends to be the same supply, and you know kind of the the approximate weight of the amount you're getting, um, and you know the dollar value of it, and so you kind of know what you're going through every day. Um, And that remains fairly constant. But you've also got a buffer. I don't think I ever ever came close to overdosing because I wasn't using that much at a time. I was using it to kind of, as I said, keep ahead of the withdrawal and get over the the pain to allow me to function and work and lead a semi-normal life through this glaring abnormality. So yeah, having that kind of constant supply where it was the same stuff coming through, I didn't really have to worry and I didn't bounce around. Now I started bouncing around with the doctor who kept increasing both doses and the potency of the type that I was taking. So kind of Tylenol-2s, Tylenol-3s, then onto Percocet, then on onto Oxycontin, and it cascades from there, right? You're digging a deeper and deeper hole with a bigger shovel every
0: time. Chess explained to us the difference between addiction and dependency of drugs.
1: I don't even like the word addiction. We were dependent. Dependency talks about someone who uses it for a valid reason, whether it be an emotional trauma or a physical ailment and ends up digging this hole in on the downward spiral with opiates
0: so chess had now developed a dependency on heroin and was more or less hiding it from the world. It was a lonely place to be in one night during the summer chess went out for a pint at a local bar and ran into an old acquaintance standing on a street corner. It was obvious to him she was a sex worker. He greeted her and discovered she was homeless and turning tricks. She needed $40 to buy a dose at a crack house where she hoped to get some sleep on the floor for a few hours without being sexually assaulted or robbed and he hated seeing her in that predicament.
2: You know, I've heard let her come home and spend the night at my place. And when I came home the next day, the dishes were done, the dog was walking, there was a thank you note. So I sent her a message telling her anytime she needed a place to crash, she being homeless and addicted and doing sex work, she could come to my house for a safe place. It it was okay, it had worked out well. And after a couple of months of that, of her coming and going, she asked if she could move in because she wanted to to clean herself up and for someone to remind her to go to her doctor's appointments to get her methadone, and that type of thing. And she knew that I had been through that before. And she saw that as an example and knew that if someone could do it, she probably could too, um, with a little bit of help and needed the safe space to do it.
0: So his friend, who I'll refer to as Jane, moved in with Chess.
2: By the fall, she had taken over my second bedroom. Um, I had a two bedroom place in, in Chinatown. And, you know, it was a, a work in progress with her she was doing both heroin and crack at the time and her crack use diminished almost entirely and she got on the methadone and cut her heroin use down to just a few times a week so she did really really well. She had a friend who helped pay her rent and she was able to get on to social assistance also to help her out because when you're homeless you can't get social assistance you need an address well how do I get an address without social assistance it's a bit of a A weird little um, disconnect there, again, with our social institutions that allows a lot of people to fall through the cracks. I thought that I was helping her get off the streets, but
0: in a lot of ways, the streets followed her. Over the next few months, he sometimes went to pick up drugs for Jane and himself, especially when she suffered from reoccurring blood infections. It was at this time he met Bob. Again, not his real name. From what Chess gathered... Bob was a past associate from the streets who would extend credit to Jane. He was homeless and a drug dealer. Chess tells us of an incident that occurred after he became acquainted with Bob through his drug dealings. He was robbed a couple of times
2: at a place that was just a couple of streets away from us. And I remember him coming around in... It must have been September, saying that there were two guys waiting to rob him at this place... And he had a bunch of guys with him already, and he was going to go over and teach them a lesson. He wanted me to come along, he found out where we'd lived, and wanted me to come along and grab a weapon and be part of his little posse to go and make these guys go away. And I think that was a bit of a test to see my own willingness to use violence. And I said, I, mean, I do like IT stuff. I don't know what you're doing here. I'm your friend.
0: I kind of sent them on their way. I was a bit scared by it, of course. After some time, Bob showed up at Chess's apartment demanding payment on a $300 debt. He refused to leave until the debt was paid and began using Chess's apartment for his own purposes. During this time, Chess would continue to go to work, only to return to a home full of strangers and physical abuse at the hands of Bob all this time you're working as a network professional you're still going to work every day four days on four days off not getting much sleep and then just coming he to home he was really careful
2: in his physical interactions with me not to ever hit me in the face because going to work with a black eye would be
0: something that might raise questions so he would he would actually be physical with you often yeah both of us Tell like a like a, a standard situation when like, do you remember one that stuck sticks out? I'd rather not. Okay, fair enough. I'd That's rather not. not a fun thing to remember. No. I know what you must be thinking. Because I thought the same thing. There seems to be an obvious solution to this problem. Why didn't Chess just call the police? And so I asked him. I had a house that was all glass
2: in the front was an old storefront that had been converted into a residential unit. I had a dog. I had Jane. I certainly didn't want bricks going through my window or anything to happen to either of them, right? Because word got around that kind of dodgy neighborhood across the street that I was a rat and and that type of thing. I didn't know a whole heck of a lot about criminal culture, but
0: I know that doesn't fly. And then I asked if he'd ever considered asking Jane to leave. After all, it appeared that the trouble he was experiencing had followed her into his home off the streets.
1: No, I didn't consider kicking Jane out. She had been doing so, so well. I saw visible progress and visible appreciation. I was really lonely at the time. My friends all knew the problems I'd had with dependency, and I had left my old job in a hurry to go and sort myself out. And part of the reason I took her in was a selfish reason that I wanted company, and by taking some responsibility for her and giving her the space to sort through her problems, I very much got a sense of, of accomplishment and contribution and a kind of friendly sibling love type of thing almost she's actually not from this country and so all through this I kept thinking if one of my sisters was in another country and didn't have any family and ended up on the street and addicted and doing sex work I would want someone to help her one of my sisters I would want someone to help her um and so I wasn't willing to go and pull my support and to renege on the responsibility for her that I'd agreed to take on and kick her back out onto the streets. And of course, yeah, she was accepting and she didn't know all that much about me. We only connected on, on certain levels. She wasn't a huge reader. She wasn't a geek like me into sci-fi and, and that type of thing so much. But there was a just a personal bond there. And maybe it was the willingness to accept each other even for either our flaws or our circumstances.
0: Time and time again, Chess had tried to get Bob out of his house. At one point, he'd asked a third party to intervene to help persuade Bob to leave. The first time, it seemed to work, only to have Bob show up a couple days later, forcing his way back into Chess's home. At one point, Chess even offered to get a hotel room for Bob, which he offered to pay for it with his credit card. Unfortunately, all that did was alert Bob to the fact that Chess could now also be extorted to withdraw funds from his credit card, thus providing Bob with a new stream of income. As we continued to sit and talk at Chess's kitchen table, the sun began to set, and we found ourselves sitting across from each other in the dark. As the light in the room disappeared, so it seemed had the options for Chester in this unfortunate story. The ability to keep his personal, professional, and family life separate was becoming so troubling to him, he no longer could bear it. I had told Jane that
2: if she couldn't get him out by the time I was done a four-day night shift, if he was still there when I came home, that I was calling the police. That was it. And I didn't care if we all went to jail. Um, That's what was going to happen. And when I came home, she was in an awful tizzy because she had come home with money from working for him and had given it to him and he'd given her a little bag of drugs. And he'd then closed the door. After she'd stepped out to go to the bathroom, she left them in there. And when she tried to go in to get them, he beat her up and burned her with a cigarette. And so she was beside herself
0: he finally made the decision to confront Bob and demand him to leave once and for all.
1: It was the first time in a number of hours and even days because it went on for a while that he was alone. And So I thought it was probably the best opportunity I had to try and resolve the situation in a way that no one went to jail, no one to prison, and no one else got hurt. And it didn't work that way. I didn't want Jane involved and had put her down in my bedroom and closed the door. I had heard him get up and go into the bathroom, and so I went and I waited right by the door. I caught him on his way out of the bathroom. I said he had to get out right then and there or I was calling the police. And I had my phone in my hand. He said something to the effect that this is my house now. What are you going to make me? He lunged at me and took me by the throat and started choking me. And when he attacked me, the the, the adrenaline shot to think that had taken a turn much, much for the worse, was terrifying. And then all of a sudden you start to lose consciousness. And you know, hitting him wouldn't have done anything. I don't think that coming up around and trying to throw a punch, he would have let go necessarily, and even if he did, he would have overcome me pretty quickly in a fight. He was he was a a street person and a person who'd been in the the criminal lifestyle and underground and who'd just gotten out of jail where he'd spent three months doing push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups. And I was a 160-pound desk jockey, nerd, and uh, not a fighter at all. And at that point, your instincts kind of take over. And it happened in a flash. It happened within seconds. And I knew something drastic had to happen to to kind of prevent the worst and certainly I was afraid of dying it's not a thought most of us have to entertain in our heads very often and I did the only thing that I thought would resolve this situation I, I grabbed an object and I hit him in the head when he fell to the ground, he was unconscious and my assumption was that I'd knocked him out. But he'd started bleeding after he fell from a wound in his temple. And so I went to talk to Jane to figure out what the hell to do, I was in a considerable state of shock. She asked if he was okay and I said I didn't know. (sighs) I was in tears, I was close to hysterics about what had happened and what and not knowing what to do next. What happens if we call an ambulance and this guy wakes up handcuffed to a bed because he's got charges? Is he coming back for us? I wondered what would happen to Jane. I had kind of assumed he was unconscious. I didn't know to what extent he was.
0: After calling 911, the emergency dispatcher instructed Chess to perform CPR on Bob's now lifeless body. We wondered how Chess felt about trying to revive a man that had just attempted to kill him. Had it occurred to him to just leave him until the paramedics arrived?
1: Yeah, it didn't really cross my mind not to do it. There was a huge fear of him, absolutely. Um, But nothing that would override my wanting him to continue breathing. I think I value life as much as any other person. And even when someone's been pretty grievously wronged in their eyes or or whatever has fallen into circumstances, perhaps of their own making to some degree by the choices they've made, one doesn't really want to be responsible for someone leaving this earth. He had family. Certainly I felt for the guy. He was homeless in January and suffering from a dependency, and he was entirely marginalized from our economy for whatever reason, and not able to function within it.
0: Chess explains what he felt the moment he saw Bob being wheeled out on a stretcher from his home with a sheet over him, realizing he was dead.
1: I don't know if I could have had my heart sink any lower. And again, I was in a bit of a state of shock as well. What was going to happen next wasn't really going through my mind very much. Just images from the past few days were flashing through my mind. I wasn't really able to look forward. I was so caught in the moment. And, you know, there was this horrible sense of finality about the thing, but it was a dreadful one not the one of relief that I was hoping for. I, one of the things that I felt on the way to the police station was that finally I was safe. That they had arrived and, and I wasn't in that situation. Because there was a huge fear for my own safety. So that fear of dread certainly was far greater than my sense of relief at finally being safe. I knew Jane was safe though, and that was a big relief to me.
0: Chess found himself handcuffed in the back of a police car facing a second degree murder charge. I'd been taken out to
2: the back of the police car, cuffed and without any shoes. And I think I was out in the back of the cruiser for maybe half an hour, 45 minutes while they worked on Jane's colleague, I'm not even too sure what to call him, my victim. And I was told at first I was being charged with aggravated assault because I was the one who wielded the weapon. And when the officer came back at the end of it and I saw
0: this gentleman being taken out with a sheet over him, I was told I was being charged with second-degree murder. If you had asked me 17 years ago if I could have ever imagined Chess killing someone, the answer would have been no. In fact, it would have been hell no. This was definitely a case of an ordinary person doing an unthinkable thing. Chess couldn't have predicted that attempting to evict Bob from his home would have ended the way it did. Chess was an intelligent guy with a good job and a caring heart. But a series of events led him into an unfortunate situation dealing with a very unpredictable character. Please join us in the next episode where we'll go back into Chess's history and hear about his journey through the Canadian penal system. I would also like to introduce to you two of my favorite podcasts True Crime Island.
4: Hi, I'm Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Every two weeks, I'll bring you true crime stories from all over the world. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can download or stream each episode or search for me on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. So grab a beer and pull up a deck chair and listen to True Crime Island. And Pleasing Terrors Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural. Between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown. Join me on a journey through the shadows of history. The Pleasing Terrors podcast weaves true stories of history and true crime with folklore and the paranormal. But be warned. There are no sweet dreams here. Only nightmares.
0: The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to Golden Era Records dot com dot slash GE. I can
1: feel the madness. Some are standing at my door. I heard they can't get in because I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the madness. Some are standing at my door. I heard they can't get in because I'm not prepared to run.